Greetings, everybody. Just a quick note before we get started. This interview was obviously recorded before the latest round of uprisings kicked off last week. Uh, to our credit, I will say we definitely predicted something like this would happen due to the suffering caused by COVID, the economy, Trump, the ineptitude of our Democratic Party mainstream, and so on. We just didn't expect it to happen this quickly. But it kicked off uh, as we were recording and, of course, exploded this past weekend into a national and even international phenomenon. That's to say it, it really hasn't been generalized into the kind of systemic critique that we were predicting. And I think there's still hope for that right now. You know, their, their anger is righteous, but it is much more concentrated on the clear and obvious racism of our policing system in the United States. Um, it has liberal inflected rhetorical, you know, constructions, which is a fancy way of saying the liberals are controlling the debate, the strategy, the analysis, the tactics right now. Uh, ben and I have recorded a B side for this week where we talk all about the the promise of this movement, but also the limitations of what we're calling liberal anti-racism. And we're going to break that down and explain that in detail in this week's B-side. Patrons get access to those B-sides each week. So if you want to listen in on that and you want to support this political and media project, head over to patreon.com slash deadpundits and smash that subscribe button. You'll get access to that B-side uh, very soon, later this week, as well as all of our B-sides. I also curate a series exclusive for patrons on the Patreon feed uh, called In Case You Missed It, where I post video, audio, lectures, debates from across space and time, across the entire interwebs. I curate that for you guys. So you guys can log off, spend less time online, and, uh, and I'll post up these important chats on your feed so uh, you don't miss out. So support this project. I really appreciate all of our patrons past and present. If you would like to support this budding socialist agenda, which is going to become ever more important, go ahead and subscribe. Enjoy the A-side. Hello, friends. This here A-side this week. Here at Dead Punnett Society. I hope that everybody is hanging in there. The country is reopening. We are resuming something that looks like normalcy. And uh, you know what else is uh, pretty normal these days? Yeah, the, the billionaires are getting a whole lot fucking richer. <laughs> yeah, so uh, my co-host Ben Burgess and I are going to be chatting today with David Griscom, the uh, the economic economics mastermind over there at the Michael Brooks Show. <laughs> the man who has challenged... Richard Wolf to several fist fights. That's my one. understanding. Uh, <laughs> and one. Uh, I mean, you know, Wolf is uh, he's a he's an intellectual giant, but uh, he's getting a little past his physical prime. So I don't want to give you too much credit there, Grisco. But uh, it, yeah, <laughs> long overdue coming on DPS. Thanks for joining us. Hey, I'm really happy to be here. We've got a lot to talk about. You know, as I said, you know, sometimes life changes at warp speed. Everything around us is shifting and altering constantly. But if there's one thing that we can really hang our hats on and take take some solace in, perhaps, is that billionaires just keep collecting billions of dollars, don't yeah. they? And, we, mm -hmm. and, and we're going to need to, um, like that millionaires and billionaires, you know, always, I won't try to do the accent, but, you know, it always, it always rolled, you know, very easily off of uh, Bernie Sanders' tongue. But now with Bezos, he's going to have to start saying billionaires, billionaires, and trillionaires. And that just doesn't sound as good. 
Yeah. It doesn't. Yeah, he's fucking everything. Thought. Bezos is on course to to be the the world's first trillionaire. Of course, Amazon has benefited tremendously from this lockdown. People are ordering their packages, you know, unable to go out to stores due to lockdowns, quarantines, and otherwise. Of course, they're package couriers who are hyper exploited and non-unionized, of course, are doing the work. Bezos is holed up, I'm sure, in one of his 11,000 uh, vacation mm-hmm. homes or super yachts, not under any risk of COVID contamination himself. You know, this outcome was in a sense quite predictable, wasn't it, Griscom? But kind of give us a, a broader sense of the kind of like economic fault lines that have developed in the midst of this crisis. The billionaire class has been, I mean, they've given a master class at like how to protect one's wealth in the time of like a catastrophic crisis of, of contemporary humanity, haven't they? I, I think so. I, I think one of the most striking like recent examples we've had at the two different worlds that we're living in um, was the most recent jobs report. Uh, that came out when uh, not only did we see, you know, massive amounts of unemployment, things that we had sort of expected, but there was actually a general rise in average payments in the average wage across the country. And that doesn't really make sense, does it? Well, it only makes sense because the vast majority of the people who are now unemployed were low-wage workers. So because so many people who are at the bottom rung of our society lost their jobs when the COVID crisis hit, the average wage actually went up. And, you know, that's like, we're really starting to see, we knew it, but there are two classes, you right? That's the same way that you get those statistics about charter schools being better than public schools, that they, uh, <laughs> yeah. public schools are required to educate every child. Ch- uh, charter schools could just kick everybody out. So the average is better. Look, exactly. we, we like to, we like to give China a lot of shit for cooking the books, right? Politically, economically, <laughs> health wise, uh, every measure is the kind of bureaucratized society over there it lends itself to people wanting to produce good numbers. It's very technocratic for better and for worse. You know, not all good, not all bad. It's a mixed bag, but, but I got, you got to hand it to the Americans here, you know, in this respect, like, like we're just sloughing off the, the poor performers and hanging our hats mm-hmm. on, on the increases we could we could do a lot more of this, right? We could just kill off everybody with disease and we could have like a life expectancy to like 101. <laughs> what else could we do? Like we could we we got we're number 1 baby. We got to keep our place. What else what else do we have to do in order to keep that position? Oh. I'll tell you, I think the funniest part about this uh crisis too is just how immediately wearing a mask became like a culture war issue. Like one of the simplest <laughs> like, you know, I, I I don't know. I mean, I shouldn't laugh at it too much, but like you know, I've been talking to my family back in Texas, and it's just ridiculous the kind of fights that they're getting into people on a day-to-day basis. Because it's not even just people not wearing masks. It's like people getting mad at you for wearing a mask now is like the second mm. level. Just yep. like pure American exceptionalism. It's like the masks are now like skinny jeans, aren't they? Like if you <laughs> yeah. if you rock them in public, people are like, oh, fucking hipster. Exactly. Right? Like, you know, it's like it's just been like this uh, culture war symbol. Yeah, no, um, I've, been, I've been really like actually one of the things that I saw that oddly reassured me was this video of shoppers at like a grocery store in Staten Island, uh, which um, who were like yelling at and getting mad at somebody who, uh, who didn't have a mask uh, in a way that was kind of reminiscent of like the, um, uh, the intervention for Christopher and the Sopranos. If you ever watched that, uh, and uh, <laughs> you know, and, and like, that was Christopher. like, Christopher. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. been watching a lot of Sopranos during the shutdown. Hell yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, uh, I've i been going back to that well, too. But uh, but that's reassuring, right? Because, like, all of these, like, uh, 
you know, made guys in uh, Staten Island are Trump supporters. So, like, you know, so, like, at least in that case, right, you know, the culture war uh, reverses itself. But, but yeah, just today I saw, like, there was some bar that, uh, that like, has, like, a no mask wearing policy now. Uh, like, it's, 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 it's like, um, you know, yeah, it's, it's, it's this culture war, like, you know, fuck you, trigger the libs gesture to uh, to not wear masks or even get mad at people for wearing masks, uh, which is which is amazing, right? Because like you know, I'll um, I mean, I spent a lot of time critiquing the strategically counterproductive things the left does, but like in this case, I'll I'll just give some free tactical advice to the right and say that if uh, that uh, killing off all of your voters probably isn't a good idea. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, look, like I'm the first guy, like you know, to to be upset when someone's not wearing a mask. Who very clearly could, but the way this has kind of been transcended into a culture war, and just you know, been horrifically like degraded on that basis. Any kind of discourse that emerges from it's going to be horrifically degraded on that basis. It's utterly predictable with the the fall of of Bernie Sanders, right? I mean, so yeah. what does that mean, Griscom, in terms of kind of like you've been tracking the discourse in a very serious way? As a, as a producer of the, of the Michael Brooks show, a show that does that kind of discourse tracking better than almost anyone, you know, how, how has this shifted? How have you tracked the, the, the disappearance of Bernie Sanders from the scene with this kind of shift into this just inane culture warrior, like transmogrification of the mm-hmm. crisis? Well, I mean, I, I think there's, I mean, there's a couple of points to, you know, Bernie dropping out because one basically on the national level, you lose a big platform for our ideas. And I think just specifically to coronavirus, and we could jump back into this uh, later, you know, not having somebody like Bernie Sanders, you know, being the front page story regularly or being covered regularly has really created, I think, a a major problem when it comes to finding a solution to this coronavirus uh, situation. So if you're a working class person um, and you're, you know, very low wage, and basically the governor of your state says they're going to close down all the businesses. And now you have no source of income, um, no access to food, no basic kind of humane uh, programs to take care of you. You know what? The only option really is to say that, well, we just have to accept the damage of this virus to our society, but I have to go back to work, right? And without this kind of strong left voice to say like, look, there's an actual alternative. There's things that we can do. We should be giving people, uh, you know, we should be paying people basically uh, payments every month. Uh, to make their basic needs, we should be making, uh, we should have Medicare for all, we shouldn't have private health care in a situation like this. I think that without that kind of grounding that Bernie Sanders was able to provide, you know, there's a real loss. Um, now, with the left, it's just been chaos, right? Because Bernie Sanders dropping out proved everybody right. <laughs> whatever your personal nonsense, you know, whatever your personal beliefs are, Bernie Sanders dropping out proved you're right. For like the kind of LARPers, um, it shows that, you know, electoral politics will never work. Um for, a, you know, and then, you know, now we're having a real debate within the kind of DSA, I don't know, I don't want to use the word electoral uh, wing, but, you know, basically talking about was this a convert, did Bernie lose because he moved too far away from the working class or because he was, you know, too woke. And, you know, I think that the big struggle that we're going to have to, uh, you know, participate in over the next few months is going to be trying to wrangle everybody back together to be able to have some kind of conversation because it's really scattered right now. And people and all people are tuning out too. Yeah, uh, there's no question. I mean, it's like so. It's like a Rorschach test in that respect, right? People yeah. see people see what they want to see in in these results. Oh, totally. Yeah, that. I mean, there was the like literally. I think every possible diagnosis you could have 
like has been argued by someone, right? That they, uh, that like, you know, Bernie lost because, you know, because he was too like class reductionist and didn't speak to racially specific concerns. Bernie lost because he was too woke and not class reductionist enough, you know, like, yeah. uh, I, I, I swear to God, before we logged on to chat today, I saw an argument on Facebook. It's like, uh, that Bernie needed more Charlemagne the God and less Adolf Reed Jr. Like, oh, yeah, what the fuck no. that means, right? Like, so like people, are, yeah, I mean, people are really uh, pretty, pretty, pretty gung ho. No, that's on, that's, that's on, true. Uh, I mean, everybody knows there's all that polling evidence that like uh, swing voters <laughs> hate Adolf Reed. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's true. But yeah, no, I mean, Griscom, you're onto something here. Like the absence of of that kind of like hard nosed, economically minded assessment of the way that people are really struggling right now has just left us kind of uh, grasping at straws. I mean, I po- I made a couple of posts a couple of days ago and I'm just, I'm being comp- mm-hmm. just uh, progressively more and more exasperated at the absence of, of this kind of like hard nose, consistent rhetoric on the left, like demanding like people fucking look like I get it. Everybody wants to support the workers. Everybody hears mm-hmm. about these online general strikes the conditions of instant cart drivers and all of the other kind of couriers that are that are fattening, you know, the the wallets of these billionaires. I mean, that's all hideous and disgusting and labor unrest should be something we're tracking very carefully. But there seems to be like a much more fundamental issue than just kind of like, you know, wildcats here and there, or kind of online uprisings or general strikes that turn out to be really not a lot of anything. It's like people mm. need money. They mm. need it now and they need it from the fucking government and it's like mm-hmm. i think that maybe perhaps the app the disappearance of bernie sanders from the scene has made people a little skittish about doing what it was that bernie sanders won them over to do in the first place which is making demands of their government exactly and and i think that that uh you know not to go down too much down the rabbit hole of you know where we are and you know what sort of I mean, basically, like the reason that that's a problem is because until we have some kind of organization or consciousness, right, that is able to have people from all over the country, you know, stand together and articulating their demands together, uh, we're going to have this constant chaos because Bernie Sanders basically was able to pin a lot of groups together and we need something to to grab that that void. Um, I think that that answer is going to have to come out of, you know, talking to people's actual, you know, experienced, uh, you know, struggles. I've been reading a lot, you know, because I do think we should go back and look at what worked and what didn't and, and sort of say, like, OK, what's this our, our, our path forward need to be? And as much as the, you know, the dratted old Leninist uh, in me, like, wants to go back and, and read Lenin and all these old communists, I, I decided I was going to go back and take a real deep dive into the American populist movement. Mm. And you can see the vast difference between those move the actual American populist movement, because that's the word that's just thrown around for any kind of movement that's against the elites. But what does that mean? That's how everyone envisions politics working, right? It's like the people versus another group. Um, but, you know, how they worked was they literally had people who were being taken advantage by merchants, the farmers primarily, who were massively in debt to them. And they realized that, you know what, it, this doesn't make any sense. We are creating all the crops that this person is benefiting from. We should pull, or t- pull together. And then we should confront the merchant and basically buy in bulk and create a kind of, you know, economic uh, organization that then became the massive political organization. Yeah, this and is I like think 1870, that, 1880, 1890 there, there. Yeah, yeah, around that, you know, and then they ended up, you know, joined together, uh, you know, with labor in like the urban areas. You know, these were in areas like the South and the West. I'm not trying to go too deep into the history of all that. But the point I want to make is that so when we're seeing all of these kind of like 
labor uprisings or people pushing back against their the work right now, we need to see this as this isn't a time to organize those groups together rather than to just celebrate that they're just sort of trickling up around here and there. The point was was that not that like a bunch of people together just randomly started acting, right? It was actually that they started coordinating their actions together. And that's what you need if you want to build any kind of left sustainable left-wing uh, politics. Um, so, you know, there's like I want to be positive. Like there is like a lot that is very encouraging about these, uh, you know, these strikes and these actions that we're seeing with Instacart workers and with Amazon workers. But until we're able to capture that energy in a kind of sustained way, you know, they're just going to be that just trickles. Right. Yeah. And I'm actually I'm glad you brought up the um, populist movement and your research on that. You know, you and I were talking about this. We, we had a uh, drink last night over Skype and, you know. By, by a drink, I mean twenty drinks, you know. Uh, and uh, uh, by drink, you you mean scotch, right? I wasn't involved in this, but I'd bet money on it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, and, and I, th- I think it's good, both you know, thematically, because on the B side, we're going to be talking to uh, Sean Good from Jacobin, who's who's uh, writing an article about Harrington, and he's actually also working on a biography of Debs, and uh, wow, so man. they. And of course, as far as like the early history of the American socialist movement, the populist stuff is is the prehistory of that, right? Like mm-hmm. that's that's what leads into um, leads into a lot of that, and also because it, it connects with something that you know I, I don't want to get us too far off track, but I, I was hoping to hear a few thoughts from you on this because uh, my understanding is that you're from uh, oh shit, what's that state called? Uh, it's the big one, and they. Uh, Really funny shape. Uh, the one, the one they like to brag all the time about. Everything's bigger there. <laughs> the I don't one know. That people really know. from there don't shut up about. <laughs> yeah, it's right, like, uh, right, it's like right. CrossFit, um, Scientology, and being from Texas. It's yeah. a religion. Uh, yeah. And I think that, like, thinking about this history of of um, of populism and socialism, and you know, which which actually oftentimes like these movements were very successful, even in very culturally conservative areas. Uh, and, and that's that's an important it's an important point because I think that even some people in the sphere of like Bernieish politics kind of think okay like if you're in certain kinds of of geographic areas that are like super blue already then like we can challenge the democratic establishment with um, mm-hmm. social democratic or socialist politics. But, you know, whatever, if you're in like Texas or some backward place like that, then like, you know, whatever, like just, 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 just regular liberals, you know, like just nominate them. Like that's, Mm. that's as, uh, that's as good as we can possibly do. And I really hope that's not true. Right. Cause like, if, if we don't start from the assumption that, that a better economic message would, um, would play in red states and in the South, then, um, I have no idea what the fucking plan is Mm -hmm. for, for, Mm -hmm. you know, like, altering the map in a way that would be good for us. Well, I mean, I would just say to that, it's like, you know, I've been in New York for a little while now, and I have to say moving here really opened my eyes up until how screwy, you know, politics are in a Democrat-controlled state. So it's like you have the Democratic Party ostensibly in power, but that party machine is very strong. And, you know, we've worked, um, you know, people like Julie Salazar and all these, like, really important, uh, you know, uh, campaigns that have challenged those, uh, those characters have been, you know, somewhat successful and, uh, you know, they've done a lot of work when it comes to fighting for renters and, and folks here, but it's just as much of an uphill battle here, I think, as it is in, you know, a Texas or a South Carolina. 
And and I think especially in those states, especially Texas, like the acts, the absolute weakness of the Democratic Party on a statewide level, because they just completely backed off. Once the Republicans started winning elections, they just sort of gave up um, and they started running these really boring conservative uh, Democrats who regularly lost elections. Because why would you want the half ass thing? Right. Go for the go for the gold. And, you know, and the other thing about, you know, Texas specifically is it's like this is a new this is a new development, the kind of Republican hold over the state. You know, that was uh, something that developed really in like the late 80s and 90s. Uh, Carl Rove was the one who got laughed out of Republican meetings, said, I'm going to turn Texas into the strongest Republican state in the union. Right. And he and he made this huge bet on it and, and he won out. So, you know, I think that in those states, like there's a lot of opportunity. Basically, our enemies aren't as strong as you think. And, you know, specifically, you know, to the labor question, I mean, these states are becoming, in Texas specifically, but all across the South, these states are becoming, um, you know, these states are, are states with massive working class populations. They're becoming the industry states of the country because they have really low unionization rates. They're ripe with opportunity for the left. And I just don't find the argument necessarily that, like, we should only be targeting, you know, only be focusing on, like, you know, safe, uh, you know, liberal states to be um, that... Uh, that interesting um and also personally uh i find it very frustrating because it's like i don't want to live in a, i don't want to live in a right-wing state for the rest of my life now at the same time i think that we need to be real about what that kind of politics means right i don't think and this is the biggest danger that i think is starting to happen as as states like texas and a lot of states across the south get all of these people who are leaving states like new york and california i mean there's been this massive exodus um of people moving to those states because you can live for cheaper um, you're starting to see a different kind of politics develop there, um, which I call sort of like a, you know, kind of like a suburban Democrat politics, where it's like, don't worry too much about labor, you know, focus basically like signaling to some cultural issues he- here and there. And I think that that's who the, the where the Democratic Party is going right now in those states. They're trying to win those voters over and they're trying to make the party for, for those folks. And I think that th- this is an opportunity at crossroads even um, for the left to really be bold and to try to challenge that shift, because that could be really damaging. Um, if we just see another big shift happen there and then we have an entire country that's essentially the same as like these, uh, you know, Democrat controlled states, right, where you have ostensibly Democrats, the left wing um, party in power, which obviously it's not. Um, but they're basically able to block any kind of progressive movement because now they control the party apparatus and the ballot line. Mm-hmm. We're really at a crossroads, aren't we? I mean, on the one hand, there there's a lot to hang our hats on in terms of the political and economic terrain is is being conditioned in a way that like is inevitably going to produce the kind of unrest that the left has historically been able to benefit from with the right tactics and strategies. You think about Occupy kicked off, mm-hmm. you know, a, a year, year and a half after the the Great Recession of 2008, 2009. And, and we had to eat a lot of shit before there was any significant pushback there. And it completely mm-hmm. changed the political seen, you know, in a way that, you know, for better, for worse, it, it, it took up some of the old methods of the anti-globalization movement that were maybe a little less effective. And of course we have, we've kind of learned as we've gone and we've more closely approximated something like, um, something powerful and potentially impactful, you know, sort of, um, all cohering in the Bernie Sanders moment. Um, we've moved away from this kind of, um, overly confederated kind of, uh, anti-state anarchist kind of, um, performative politics. And there's some good stuff there. Like I can hear people like objecting to everything I just said there. There's some good stuff there. We take the good with the bad, you you tweak and here we are. A year or two from now, you very much see, you could very much see the kind of like um, epochal shift 
in left wing struggle that occurred, like say in Occupy. So there's a mm-hmm. lot to be excited about. But on the flip side, you've got this culture war that is now manifested, which it's like you know on the one on the one side. So you know the 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 way to sort of you know plot yourself on the the sort of um, the the political continuum now is like you know whether or not you think wearing a mask is important. <laughs> yeah. And it's like completely covers over all the other issues. And the other issues also as well, let's not forget, uh, the, the libertarian right are running away with as we speak because they're the only ones who are offering any kind of plan for someone, even if it is murderous and quasi-homicidal, which is com- going back to work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and let's, I mean, the optics of this thing are astonishing. Like, you know, workers and small business types of people, gig economy workers, were told by their respective states that it is illegal to do your job. And whether or not you agree with that morally or ethically or whatever is another question, but it's illegal to do your job. And yet we're not going to do a fucking thing to make sure that you can stay alive for the next eight to nine weeks. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of 19 states have yet to implement uh, the pandemic unassist, uh, unemployment assistance programs that were expanded under the CARES Act uh, to get money in the hands of, of in the pockets of gig workers and small business owners and people who are otherwise traditionally uncovered by their state uh, unemployment yeah. offices. And, you know, in the libertarian right are the only people who who have any kind of plan at all, which is to say, fuck it, we got to open it back up so we can get money in these people's pockets. Um, you know, what do you make of that, like, contradictory appearance of, like, opportunity, but also, like, massive fuckeration mm-hmm. coming from the mainstream uh, liberal class who, who really seems to be controlling you know, uh, the way that people view progressive politics in America? Well, I'll I'll say this. uh, To start with, I think that, you know, we can realize that the Democratic leadership's response to this pandemic has been laughable. Uh, Not only have they failed to come up with like a a real sustained solution to this, even an alternative. Uh, The fact that Chuck Schumer has spent spent the past two months trying to make sure that Donald Trump can't sign your uh, your $1,200 stimulus check it's so ridiculous. He should be telling he should be telling Trump that he'll you know we're going to pass Trump bucks, <laughs> and uh, you know we can send Americans two thousand dollars every month until the crisis is yeah, over. Get your get your I two thousand dollar Trump bucks. He'd be all <laughs> for it, right? Like like the Mickey Mouse dollars. I don't know. I, I, my parents never took me to Disney. I don't know. Is that what it is? Mi- Mickey bucks, <laughs> maybe something. Yeah. Mickey bucks, Mick bucks. Um, you know, but like you know, on on a serious note, I think that. The difficult part about this crisis is we don't know what's going to happen afterwards. So the first thing I would note is that when it comes to reopening the economy, it's not good for business. Anyone who's worked in the service economy, uh, for example, knows that opening up a restaurant at 25% capacity is a way to make no money, right? Um, all of the, the what you have to do to keep people safe is not something that's going to you know be able to uh, you know create a, a viable business plan for you going forward. On top of that. It really doesn't seem that people are that willing to go out and to spend money like they would need to uh, to really stimulate the economy. So there's going to be a lot that is needed to be able to get things uh, back moving again. And I think that to get into like the the real kind of nitty gritty about this, though, I think that what we're seeing right now is just the complete decoupling of the lived experience of the vast majority of Americans from the kind of financial elite. And that's been coming for a long time now. Uh, the past decade has been a really exceptional period of time when it comes to uh, the kind of profits that the wealthy have been able to extract uh, versus what the experience has been for the vast majority of people. And I think there's a few things that you have to demystify. But uh, you know, just to 
I think the first thing that we need to realize is that this is a, a problem of exploitation and a problem of you know capitalist accumulation, not about automation. I think that there's a big movement right now to try to obscure the causes of uh, you know the the weakness of the American working class right now, and I think that that's particularly dangerous. When you see what the federal government did in response to the 08 crisis, you saw you know, an organization, a government that was willing to do everything that it was needed to do to prop up the asset prices of the super wealthy. And when it came to doing something for the working class, for the American people, there was barely any kind of, uh, you know, reaction. And I think right now we're seeing that play out again. I mean, this like last $1,200 has been nice for some people. I'm sure it's better than nothing, but it's not adequate. It's not adequate when you realize that the vast majority of Americans are renters and that they are rent burdened. Um, and that if they don't have access to income, they can't make those payments in the first place. Um, it's it's not it's not uh, adequate um, when you realize that the American working class has had stagnant wages for thirty years. And what is people? What have people done with this twelve hundred dollars? Um, by the way, the vast majority of them either they used it to buy basic goods like food, right, or they used it to pay down their debts. Yeah, I, because we have a working class that's completely in debt. I think it was a Bloomberg piece there where they, they were like. Uh, Millionaires and their uh, paid prize fighters, uh, paid prize fighters of billionaires, I should say, were like musing and in, in, uh, like in shock that like we would have thought that like, you know, uh, luxury items or like consumer, you know, consumer durables or whatever would have gone up, you know, in the wake of this stimulus. But instead, these people are like paying off debts and paying their rent like who would have fucking imagined that would be the case? It's like fucking all of us, right? Everyone except mm-hmm. for you guys. Like uh, everyone except for those who just think that, you know, who look at like a $1,200 check as like pure windfall as though we're all just, you know, starting from from the zero point as if we're not all in debt uh, up to our fucking eyeballs. It's wild, isn't it? Yeah. And, you know, so I think that like, you know, there's a couple of ways we can go with this, but I think like the most fundamental point that we need to make as socialists going forward and starting to think about what our strategy needs to be is to recognize how these institutions have basically worked to benefit the super wealthy. Um, I talk about this a lot on the Michael Brooks show. It's a slow burning story, but it's been basically the actions of the Federal Reserve over the past decade. And what they have done is they've kept money really cheap. And they're able to do that um, because they basically set the price of money because they set the interest rates to the banks. And that creates an environment where if you have financial relationships with these major banks, you're able to you know, borrow at such a low rate, uh, massive amounts of money. And the majority of that money was used to uh, buy back their own stock, which is about, you know, increases their own asset prices. And I think that this is a very important dynamic to look at because it played out again in the coronavirus uh, um, experience. So when, when uh, you know, they made this business loan for small businesses so that, you know, the small businesses could continue paying their employees, there was a massive scandal. Because the vast majority of what you would consider to be small businesses weren't able to get the loans. But you know who was? You know, organizations like Shake Shack. Because the banks prioritized the relationships with already, you know, with the clients they already had. And those, what surprise, those clients happened to be massive American corporations. So you see even between like, we're, you know, we're not even talking about just like bosses and workers. We're talking about large business to just like the vast majority of the American population. And they just have such a completely different relationship uh, to finance um, than than any of us do, which means that they're able to create this uh, system that is so skewed to even how it reacts to a massive event, right? So we saw the stock market 
take a massive dive at the beginning of this. And you're starting to see it creep back up again. And everyone's like, what the hell's going on, right? It doesn't seem like anything's come close to any kind of a solution. Well, it's because they basically have gotten the assurances from the Federal yeah. Reserve that the Federal Reserve will do anything is, that is necessary to make sure that they're safe. Yeah, I mean, the stock market ultimately is an expectations dis- detecting machine, isn't it? It, mm-hmm. it, it, it I, detects the expectations and the anticipations of the investor class, not so much the actual, certainly not the fundamentals and, and not even the actual performance of the economy. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's a, uh, you know, I mean, right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's very good at, at getting a sense of, of how happy uh, rich people are, but you know, which, which can be an indication of, of economic fundamentals in a very indirect, very unreliable way, but uh, it's more unreliable than ever right now. Uh, I don't know if the fundamentals increased when Bernie Sanders dropped out of the race and, and Wall Street <laughs> spiked. You know, that's uh, yeah, that's a different that's well, that's a different that's a different sort of existential uh, fundamentals, I suppose. Uh, right? Yeah, and and, anyway. and I guess I, I also think like uh, part of the interruption, everybody. This is the part of the program where I ask you to support DPS with your hard-earned wages. This episode, like all of the other episodes of DPS over the past three years, have been made possible entirely thanks to the solidarity of our listeners, in particular, our patrons. If you want to get access to our weekly B-sides, if you think that what we're doing here on this show is important, if you'd like to help us spread the word, continue to educate these kind of budding socialist cadres across the country and across the world, uh, I implore you. Head over to patreon.com slash dead pundits and subscribe at a level at which you are comfortable. I know this podcast, this socialist podcast, media ecosystem is kind of like old hat these days, right? You know, like two or three years ago, it was like new and exciting and fun and edgy. And everybody was like jumping on Chapo's uh, Patreon feed and becoming gray wolves. And, you know, Patreons were exploding and podcasts were exploding. And now, you know, there's kind of like more stuff to listen to than anybody could ever possibly handle in any given day or any given week um I mean, these are good problems to have but that's just to say that you know we can't allow this new budding socialist media ecosystem to go the way of the blogosphere right we've got to continue to build this thing and grow um you know socialist education is not like the most fun thing in the world but we we try to do it in a way here on dps that, that is like somewhat entertaining and, and enjoyable but we don't hold any punches. We don't pull any punches when it comes to like dealing with difficult topics and, you know, uh, giving you doses of like hardcore, like theoretical insights. And, you know, we try to thread that needle. I think we do a pretty damn good job. And if you think so too, head over to patreon.com slash dead pundits and smash that subscribe button. As I mentioned at the intro of the show, Ben and I have recorded a B-side talking about the limitations of liberal anti-racism in the context of the latest urban uprisings. Um, that's going to be a really important show. You know, these uprisings are heavily inflected with like liberal discourses and liberal strategies. You know, and some of that is okay, but you know, as socialists, we want to inject some good old-fashioned class struggle. In, 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 in between these demands for like raising voices and increasing representation and supporting black owned businesses and all of these other dead ends that we have seen wreck movements from Trayvon Martin before that to Troy Davis and then into Ferguson and elsewhere and beyond, you know, socialists, we multiracial band of socialists over the past 200 years have fought and argued that we need to generalize these struggles from these kind of 
micro, um, you know, societal uprisings, you know, we mean like racism and the police and so on. We need to generalize that and understand what role those kinds of oppressions play in the maintenance of this overall like macro oppressive system, right? It's the whole damn system that needs to be indicted. And I think that's the role that socialists have to play. And that's what we try to do here at DPS. So if you think that's important, you know, I implore you to support us today. We can't do this without you. All right. Enough out of me. Enjoy the rest of this interview with David Griscom. You know, I mean, whatever. Maybe this is just obvious. But like, you know, listening to all that, like, you know, where my mind went is because like I, I spend all this time arguing with uh, with conservatives and libertarians. So I can kind of hear their voices in my head now. And so a lot of these a lot of these people would say, oh, no, 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 yeah, no, like, but like what you're describing with like the paycheck protection program funds being that were supposed to be for small businesses being siphoned off by these politically connected, um, you know, major firms. That's that's like crony capitalism, right? Where, you know, that's that's bad. You know, we, we that's not what we want. Right. Like we want like we want a kind of capitalism that's as pure as the driven snow. Yeah, it's 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 capitalism cut with like baking soda or whatever. Yeah. Right? They want that that <laughs> Yeah. And, 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 yeah and, and, they want that Peruvian flake, baby. Give me some of the, the good shit. Yeah. As if this this like pure form were out there ready, willing. So why yeah, I mean the question you have to ask, the next foot that has to drop is okay, crony capitalism. Why yeah. is it like yeah. that? And how could it be otherwise? No, like, and then you have exactly. to start talking about power and and how capitalism distributes power exactly. to certain people. Exactly. Like, like, right? like, like, it's odd. They they want to worship fetishize capitalism like in a powerless universe. Yeah. And, and and so so what they're essentially saying is that like the good kind of capitalism, the pure Peruvian flake capitalism, would no, I'm I I lived in Miami for six and a half years. This is a very natural metaphor <laughs> for me. Uh so um uh, would be one where somehow magically the concentration of economic power doesn't lead to the concentration of political power. So that's 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 approximately equivalent to saying like after like New Orleans is just flooded. Yeah, yeah, but like in the world that I want, water would flow backwards. Like it's 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 like irrelevant on that level. It's like yeah. well, you might want that. Like I, you know, like I'd like a lot of things, mm. but you can't get that right you could either decide not to allow all this economic and political power to concentrate in certain hands uh or you could allow that to happen you know and then live with the political consequences of that you know there is no third option yeah so mm. so griscom let's talk about this recovery then i mean in the in the beginning of this thing trump and his cronies Mnuchin and the others who are just completely and totally inept um and, and i mean we need to highlight their ineptitude right i mean it's easy for us to talk Shit on Larry Summers. I mean, Lord knows, I'm, mm-hmm. I'll be in the front of the line. Ben, you, you'll be maybe even I'll be second in line. You'll be front of the line. You, you write talk quite a bit about him, um, but but other people, you know, compare him to a Steve Mnuchin, for example, um, or like a Sonny Purdue. Uh, these like these industry like you know, uh, kingpins who who know jack fucking squat about running an economy as like this the state entity, which is required to step in and even out the markets and in this kind of like relatively autonomy, the the relative autonomy of the state, right? They're, they're Mm. managing the state as though it were a capitalist firm rather than the thing that is meant to step in, in a, in a relatively functional crisis prone form of capitalism, right? To step in and, 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 and give the private firms a dose of, of whatever it is, is that is required in that moment, right? Even if it means going against their direct and immediate interests. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think that when you look at all these people, of, who, I don't know, like I don't find there to be, you know, such a, a large jump, for example, between like the Obama and the Trump administration when it comes to this kind of financial policy. I think that like what you saw under the Obama administration um, was the the laying of a, of a new dynamic. Um, so like, l- let me give you an example of that. So the Volcker rule, right, which was put in uh, – pretty much after the, um, you know, the financial crisis was supposed to stop organizations from being able to, the simplest way to put it is from doing prop trading, which is basically using um, people who are putting their money into the bank, using that to make risky investments, right? To basically, you know, bet with. Um, And, you know, so they basically put all these rules against them to ban it. But when they did it, they invited all of the major lobbyists from all of the major banks in the United States. And those lobbyists, um, uh, um, Andrew Coburn wrote a really good piece in this in Harper's, uh, which I highly suggest. I can't remember the title of it right now. Um, but all those lobbyists basically lobbied to make the law as cumbersome and confusing as possible. So then fast forward to the Trump administration, right? They scrapped the law because it was cumbersome and confusing, right? But that was laid out by the trim the fat, baby. They- you got to trim the fat, you know? <laughs> They understood basically yeah. the, these folks who were coming yeah. in there what they were going to be able to use the Obama administration for. Yeah. They understood yeah, yeah, that they yeah, needed yeah, yeah. to come, so you know, with their hat in hand yeah. and you know and apologize. But they knew that the fundamentals wouldn't change. So the, the Obama think, administration sort of batted where they were in the leadoff position. They loaded up the bases, right? And then the Trump yeah. administration comes in and, and, and bats cleanup and, and hits a grand slam and just completely rids us of of the thing that the, the capitalist class didn't want in the first place. I mean, let's let, let me. I, so there is a continuation there. That's that's really key, I think, to talk about that continuation. But why is it then? You know, let's talk about the speculation pre-crisis. The fact that. How far do they really have their own heads up their asses is my question. Because in the beginning of this thing, they're talking about a V-shaped recovery, right? Mm-hmm. We're going to bounce back very quickly. V-shaped as in like, you know, on a graph, you look at sort of consumer spending or GDP or whatever the case may be. Uh, it's going to bounce back. It's going to drop precipitously because we're forcing the economy to shut down due to this exogenous crisis. And it's going to mm-hmm. bounce back immediately because there's all of this, there's all of this um, demand. demand that is, you know, people aren't spending money. They're not going out. And so clearly we're all, you know <laughs> – independently wealthy and so we just we don't pay off debts we don't pay our rent uh we don't spend more money uh on on booze because we got to sit at home all day uh we got all this money we're gonna we're all gonna buy a boat when this thing is over in their in their worldview um a lot of people are now saying like we're in for uh an l-shaped recovery maybe explain that for people who don't follow the financial press and give your take on it well i you know i think you know basically the idea um is that you know, like, yeah, their idea was that once things reopen, people are going to sprint out and start spending money. But it, what it seems from what uh, we've seen already from states that have partially opened up and just from spending when it comes to uh, what people have done with this most recent money, that people are going to start hoarding their money or not hoarding. I don't want to use a word like that because it's very rational to say, like, I just lived through a massive crisis and I don't want to spend. Um, I also realize that my job is not very secure. I realize not if I, if you didn't get laid off, you saw your family. I mean, the majority of Americans now have somebody in their family, something like 40% of Americans have either directly or somebody in their direct family has been laid off because of the coronavirus. You live through something like that and you're not really going to go outside uh, with your credit card in hand wanting to buy as much as possible. Um, so it's very clear uh, that following this, if, I mean, who even, I, I guess like I don't want to get into the game of, of predictions as much of, um, you know, really talking about like the structural 
problems that we face, right? And that comes down um, to the fact that the American consumer is incredibly weak when you're talking about the vast majority of the population, and most consumer spending is uh, is is spurred on by like the upper middle class. If you look, I mean, even anecdotally, um, like look at the ads that you get. I mean, they're for like hundred fifty dollar. I don't know, custom bespoke, you know, T-shirts and things like that, right? There's been the lack of innovation um, when it comes to like for, mo- for most people. There's either like super poor, like fast fashion, right? Super cheap or like su- very high end. And it's because that's where the money is. You either have to create at a very, very low margin, right? Where you can sort of eke out profits or you just create luxury goods. Um, and that's a lot of the consumer market. So I think that the possibility that we're going to come out of this crisis and have some kind of uh, massive, uh, you know, reinvigorated economy, I think is absolutely bogus. And yeah, I think that it's going to be a very, very long process of recovery going forward. Are, are they riffing off of the kind of post-World War II, uh, you know, golden age of capitalism boom assumption, right? And that's an assumption yeah. that's based off of, even if they are like a very like reified, stultified, simplified, uh, you know, uh, abstraction of an abstraction of a, of a, of a Ken Burns movie or something. I like Mm -hmm. Ken Burns. I have respect for that man. But anyway, I digress. Like, I mean, it was much more tumultuous, the post-war years uh, for sure. Mm -hmm. But is that what they're doing? They're just like, well, this is just what, this is what happens when the global economy is wrecked by a major exogenous force. We bounce back, right? We're Mm -hmm. Americans. This is how we do it. Like, where's this coming from? I got to know. I mean, Fucking Neiman yeah. and Marcus just shut down, right? Where major, yeah. major retail chains are suffering and people are not going to have a job to go back to once the economy reopens. Like, how could anyone think this? And we don't have the drug of, of manufacturing or an industrial economy as we did. So, like, if you look across the board of uh, 50s plus, that has been the most effective um, economic weapon is when you have a strong manufacturing and strong industrial sector. Um, and, you know, that's been behind the massive you know, increases in, in living standards for people, you know, across China um, and Asia now, like that is a very effective way because it's a high productive productivity economy. Uh, what we've seen in the United States, especially over the past 20, 30 years, but I would say, especially over the past 10 years, has been more and more uh, people, you know, working service jobs, working, you know, with sort of low productivity jobs. Like you're working, you're creating value, but it's not the same thing as, you know, creating you know, consumer goods for people for people to uh, consume. So we don't have that opportunity to go back to that that system that they did in the post war economy, where you basically had all of these people uh, coming back from the war. Uh, you had all of these you know factories that had basically been you know unused or were used to produce weapons. Uh, we don't have that kind of opportunity to rebuild in that way, and it, it doesn't look like like I think that there's a problem because a lot of people think that. You know, the problem is necessarily like globalization. What has happened is that the the industry that is necessary for the global economy did move from the United States to other countries. But those countries lost it to other countries that were able to outbid them. And what we've seen is that there's actually is an overproduction problem. So like the only way to get that kind of industry base is you have to cannibalize it from another country. You have to get it from another country by basically underbidding them. Right. It's not something it's actually you know, one of these fundamental contradictions of capitalism, actually, there's not the fundamental, there's not the possibility of exponential growth in the manufacturing sector. Um, And, you know, those kind of tools aren't an option for us. So going into this next stage is post coronavirus stage, we're going to have to start looking very creatively at different ways of of doing work. Uh, You know, I think most people 
um, feel, you know, that they're underemployed, underutilized. I think that, you know, there's definitely a possibility to start arguing for less hours, um, you know, the sort of work week and things of that nature. Uh, but when it comes to what those people at the top of our society are, are talking about, they're completely delusional. Um, and the only and the only reason that they've been able to uh, ha- have so much success over the past a few decades is because of financialization. Financialization is the key to the delusion of the ruling class in the United States. Yeah, let's talk about this. The debt burdens are uh, at historic highs, levels not seen since the the immediate lead up to the the latest recession of 2008 2009 we're going to have to change the name of that it's like they called uh, world war 1 the great war until there was another <laughs> one we're going to have to rename the great recession cuz we're in for some real shit mm-hmm. uh look no further than uh, nuriel rubini who is an award winning economist uh, notoriously you know tr- did everything he could try to do to to sound the alarm about the coming recession in 2008 2009 he's now pre- predicting that we're in for uh, something much more akin, if not worse, than the Great Depression uh, mm. leading, out, leading out of this. I mean, there's so many different things that are uh, threatening structural things, not just COVID that are, you know, he's talking about climate change and, uh, you know, global competitiveness that you just sort of talk to this kind of race to the bottom. The lack of uh, willingness on global kind of uh, economic political elites to think about transitioning their systems in the way that Thomas Piketty has been talking about is so required to do. Um, yeah. What, what do you make of those dire doom and gloom predictions? I mean, I think the reality, specific, especially the United States and the United Kingdom, our, our economies are have been severely broken for a very long time. Uh, I think a really great example of this has been the damage that we've seen to an organization uh, like SoftBank, uh, which for a very long time uh, was one of the primary investors. And, in, you know, in organizations, uh, the most famous of, uh, of them is WeWork. Right. But I think that you could categorize like a whole sector of the economy that sort of falls into that um, that realm, which are tech, quote unquote, they love to call themselves tech companies, but they're just providing some service that's always existed. Right. But they say we're the new high tech version of it and they are just massively unprofitable. We work, um, you know, was was a complete joke. And the only, the only, and they got exposed yeah, it's a, it's um, when they tried to writing, go public and they had to open. We work out there. People should, <laughs> I'll, I'll try to link to some of that stuff in the show notes. I'll say like, maybe it was a joke and a scam, but man, they had some good fucking parties before it all oh, collapsed, yeah. didn't they? Oh, they had the, I mean, I'm sure you've heard the stories of, uh, of Newman and like the, like they were fired people at one point. I can't remember what band they had, but they had a band show up at their headquarters and play music as they announced that they were like laying off like 20% of their workforce and passed out like shots of tequila. I want to say it was like an old, like a 2000, like an aughts, like punk rock band, like, um, like some 41 or some shit like that, you know, imagine like, yeah, it was wild. But you know, that, that was an organization that was not going to be profitable at all. And SoftBank has been, you know, so like there's been parts of the, uh, like the stock market and that part of the economy that have found ways to survive, but SoftBank has been hit. Because all of their investments were massively unprofitable. And basically, the idea of financialization is just as long as there's financial growth, everything's okay, right? Because as long as money's cheap enough to replenish your stock, uh, you can just keep on going forever. And whenever there's a shock, like we just saw, um, or even just the shock that when the when the Federal Reserve started saying that, like, you know what, maybe we're going to raise interest rates like a little bit to approach what normal has been um, across, you know, U.S. history, you saw, you know, massive panic uh, with these organizations. So like the, these have been the primary drivers, these tech corporations um, 
of, of like American financial growth and, and growth in the, in the stock market. And those are fundamentally broken models. So I would not put it past, you know, the people in power to be able to continue to use and to leverage um, the immense power that the power that the Federal Reserve and the federal government can provide for them. Um, but when it comes to providing relief uh, for all of us, it's, it seems very unlikely because that model was broken um, when it was good. Right. And it's even more so, uh, you know, ineffective now. Yeah. So you talk, you've been talking a lot about you know, different, um, you know, another big stain on the economy, a structural stain on the economy is the role of private equity. Right now, I don't know this to be the case for sure, but you see the closure of large chain stores like you know Neom and Marcus. Uh, certainly, we know the role that private equity equity played in the bankruptcy of Toys R Us mm-hmm. and other retail giants uh, over the past couple of years. Uh, BlackRock, of course, like uh, owning more wealth than like most sovereign nations, um, is is currently wielding and throwing wielding power and throwing its weight around in the global South and particularly Argentina. So let's let's transition. Of course, we've, this has been kind of a global yeah. kind of uh, discussion, but let's be more explicitly internationalist about this and and assess kind of like how is this crisis impacting um, you know countries on that second and third rung of the economic uh, food chain, and and what might that spell for like you know the political unrest in those in those regions. Well, for sure. And um, yeah, I'll, I'm going to tell this basically what's happening in Argentina. And I think that's a good way even to loop back at the parasitic relationship that these organizations have within our own um, our own economy, because this is what they do to corporations, too. Um, they basically, you know, get them into massive amounts of debt and then they have fire sales. And th- so Argentina has had a lot of issues in the past when it comes to international uh, debt. And they have defaulted on, on their debts multiple times, most famously in the early 2000s, and, and then again uh, uh, recently, and then very recently, just this last week. Um, but to give you like the quick rundown of it, the former president of, uh, of Argentina, uh, President Macri, was a horrible neoliberal right wing, you know, the, every kind of stereotype of these kind of nasty neoliberal South American leaders. Yeah, he, he was and, produced like in a in vitro or in a, in a test tube <laughs> at like the Chicago University of Chicago's Department of Economics. Absolutely. And, you know, he took over and his plan, you know, he was like, we're going to modernize Argentina. They took out a significant amount of uh, money from the IMF and a significant amount of private loans um, and private debt um, is something that is becoming more and more of a problem uh, for you know, middle income and low income countries, especially in Africa, as like the kind of major international organizations and major countries um, are sort of becoming a little bit more worried about you know, giving them massive, um, you know, loaning the money, private investors are stepping up and charging egregious interest rates. Um, so in Argentina, something around $65 billion uh, is owned by um, a, a group of different investors, but the predominant one is BlackRock. And a new government uh, came into power early um, this year, uh, Fern- and um, President Fernandez. And they have their center-left government. You know, let's you know be real about this. We're not talking about some kind of like radical socialist program or anything like that. But they're a human government, and they realize that coronavirus is a massive problem, and that you need to have a human-centered approach to that. Um, so they've been doing the kinds of things that we should have been doing in this country. What you know, providing people basic incomes. Um, they've they've basically been targeting the super rich in their in their country. Fernandez recently said 
um, to the, uh, in a phone call to like the business elite of Argentina, boys, it's time for you to pay more, right? So there has been, you know, a push against the kind of neoliberalism of the previous administration. Now, all this is, all this is, ha- is happening. They are unable to make the debt payments that they need to make, uh, to, um, to their, you know, to this massive private fund and to their international, um, the people who own their debts internationally, the IMF, right? An organization, which is usually not the first organization to come in as a humanitarian organization has actually said that they do not believe that Argentina can make debt payments at least for four to five years. And IMF has been pleading with these private investors to let Argentina renegotiate their debt and give them a more, you know, a period of time where they don't have to make debt payments. Yeah. There, there's but that this, distinction between like the relatively autonomous institution versus the like, insanity and irrationality of private capital, right? I mean, the IMF, we're not apologizing for them in any way, shape, or form. No, definitely not. But they are nonetheless more interested in the stability of that rapacious system that they're at the helm of than, say, BlackRock, Mm. who's willing to take it all down uh, so long as they can profit off of the wreckage. Because they can profit off of the wreckage. um, and because it's because it also sends a message to all of these other countries that have debts uh, with BlackRock that they're not going to accept uh, any kind of renegotiations. And like the renegotiations that Argentina has put forward are very reasonable. You know, like a slight um, cut in the interest rate, a moratorium, I think, of three years on payments, um, and then you know a slight a slight cut in the overall uh, principle of the debt. So you know they've they've come forward with this very reasonable proposal. And BlackRock has essentially said that they they view the Argentinian renegotiation as a, a complete non-starter. So Argentina has actually stood strong, and they didn't make their payment. They just refused to pay any money recently, um, and they're going they're in, they're currently in renegotiation uh, now that they they've put the deadline at June second. You know, so we'll see what happens there. The reason this is so, if if folks don't understand why this is uh, you know such a fundamental issue. If you lose access to credit, if you're a country like Argentina, it becomes very difficult to run an efficient state. And it becomes really difficult in the environment that we live in, the global economy, uh, where the U.S. dollar is the primary. That's the money that everybody wants. If you want to get paid by a country, you usually want to get paid in U.S. dollars. So BlackRock and all these, uh, you know, this organizations that are associated with them are demanding payments in dollars. So for Argentina, that actually means choosing Right between importing medicine or medical devices or food, um, or servicing the debt to a bunch of you know rich people in the United States and Western nations, um, so it's going to become uh, more and more of a problem because Argentina is Argentina has financial issues, but Argentina is far from a, uh, you know one of the poorest countries in the globe, um, and there's going to be a massive. A crisis when it comes to these countries being able to renegotiate their debts, unless the international community um, basically says to this new class of people, because this this the massive amount of like private investment is something that really developed in the past 15, 20 years. Um, so there there have been moments in history where nations have come together and said, you know what, it's not it doesn't make sense to basically keep poor nations completely indebted to us because they can't grow, right? And they forgive some of the debt. 
right? And that's politics. But when you have these private investors that are operating on a completely different logic. Um, so, you know, the one, there's going to have to be fight back from these countries and basically taking both stances like Argentina is doing right now. But there's going to have to be a kind of international consensus on how we're going to deal uh, with this private class of investors. In my opinion, um, you know, I'll be a pure capitalist here. You're investing money in Argentina. You're making a bet that Argentina, they made a bet on McCree and that McCree's government and his system was going to work. It didn't. It got, he got voted out overwhelmingly, right? Those people should eat it. They should eat it. Like, seriously, you made a bad bet. You made a bad investment. Do not you. And what they're going to try to use, too, is the United States, basically, because we're such an imperial power. They can use and, and sue um, through the United States yeah. courts. Yeah. They'll, they'll force they'll force the, uh, the, the loan shark, the loan sharks uh, that, the, yeah. that the United States, you know, global capitalist elites have have set up for themselves in order to collect. I mean, this is just Sopranos level shit. We're, let's go. Exactly. We're coming right back to it. I mean, Ben, what would your libertarian buddy say here about freedom <laughs> of contract? Right. I mean, seriously. I mean, you know, hey, the BlackRock, these these equity guys, they made a bad bet on uh, Argentina's solvency or or ability to pay, and, and and you know, instead of facing the consequences of the market in the way that capitalism is supposed to function, you know, they've just uh, they just threatened to, to to bust up some kneecaps, don't they? <laughs> no, this is. Uh... Yeah, no, I mean, this is very true. Um, I would actually, I'm all reminded of uh, one of my favorite lines. I think it was in the last, uh, the last season. Um, the Christopher is like ordering a hit in, in the way that like the most understated possible way. He's like playing pool with like some minor character, you know, who's only in that episode. And uh, he's telling him about somebody who owes them a lot of money. And the guy's like, oh, uh, you want me to go collect? And Christopher's like, eh, nah, that ship is sale. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He, he, he knew what the fuck that meant, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and exactly. That's, that's the, and the, Argentina, the, the Argentina principle is, is the same, right? Like, and, yeah. and it's amazing, too, right? Because, like, if you do want the money back, right? Like, like, okay, yeah, I think – I mean, obviously, I think they should just eat it. But, like, if they – you know, if, if you do want the money back – then you should actually be reasonable about this renegotiation stuff, right? You mm-hmm. know, because, yep. you know, you do you want an economy that you're actually going to be able to get your money out of? You know, like that's the, that's the but question. But again, you know, we, we've, we've spent decades now imagining that the IMF are like the original gangsters here in the global mm. south. Turns out that things have taken such a turn that they're actually more concerned about like, the viability of the system and the new gangsters, you know, are coming in, not unlike the, the long-term trajectory of the Sopranos, I might add, and uh, being far more reckless with the system and threatening to take it all down, uh, you know, because the old, the old, uh, the old wise guys are, are too cautious, too conservative, too risk averse. And, and, it, and it's worth, and it's worth pointing out like what the calculation is, you know, for, for the new, for the new gang here. Right, because it's it's essentially the same as like a few years ago when uh, Greece uh, was in negotiations with uh, the Troika, mm-hmm. uh, and and if you read like what Yanis Varoufakis, who is the Syriza, you know, um, finance minister, I guess, uh, has has written about these negotiations, uh, like he would, you know, like he would like plead with them, like he he'd make these like rational economic arguments that you know, come on, like. You know, if if you impose all this austerity on us, we're just not going to have like we're not going to be able to pay you back. Right. Like this is like like don't you want the Greek economy to like do well enough that like we're going to be in a good position here. 
But of course, at a, they were totally indifferent to that, which, you know, Varoufakis either found or for effect in his writings claimed to find kind of incomprehensible. But I think it's it's very comprehensible. It's the same reason that, you know, Christopher thought the, you know, the ship has sailed, you know, with the, the guy that uh, who owed the money in the Sopranos episode that uh, because if like the, you know, it, they the calculation they've made uh, is that, you know, that, yeah, the BlackRock, the Argentina or or, um, uh, or or the Troika with Greece, you know, is, is that it's going to be better for business in the long run to make an example mm-hmm. than to actually get their money back. That, and that's the fundamental story. And it's like, it's always interesting, too, to see like the class. And there's a political question, too, because they would love to just see the end of this, uh, you know, kind of center left government, you know, especially when they're doing things like, you know, trying to say to the super rich that they have a responsibility to their country. You know, Argentina is, uh, I think it was FT estimated there's around like $300 billion um, in assets that are held offshore by the Argentina, like super elite. Um, you know, which is the amount of money uh, um, when you actually include the um, the international debts that they have plus the private debts is around the same amount of money as Argentina owes. Um, it's almost you know, to like these there creditors. was this wealth transfer <laughs> from the people to the super rich. I mean, God, the, yeah, the yeah. Jesus, it's almost like a little bit too on the nose sometimes, isn't it? When you start crunching the numbers, and and they're afraid of. I'm sorry, you know, just like they're afraid of Fernandez basically forcing those people to repatriate all their funds. Yeah, yeah. Right. There's a, a similar kind of outrage in the United Kingdom and some of these other countries uh, some years ago, um, which you know hasn't come to fruition yet. But let's bring it home here. We're nearing the end of our conversation. You are a commentator and a producer. Uh, over there at the Michael Brooks show. And you guys do a lot of really, you guys follow the discourse. But another thing you guys do that I think it's exceptional is you follow the politics of the global South, you know, um, you know, uh, Michael obviously is, is, uh, his, his long-term uh, now, I think they're not BFFs, uh, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. With, uh, former Brazilian, uh, president Lula, the Silva, but, uh, but you know, you guys, you guys track this stuff very, very carefully. Um, the the global south is kind of seen as like the a tinderbox in a lot of ways. It's also seen to kind of presage political struggle for the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what are some of the fault lines you see emerging here? Um, I want to get you on record uh, predicting the next uh, upturn uh, so we can make you fucking famous. <laughs> uh, so so give us like a glimpse of like because you know it's two thousand eight and nine. Yeah. We're eating shit. Everybody's broke. You know. Um, uh, everybody at Wall Street just lost their jobs. People are getting booted from their homes. It's horrific. And nobody sees the occupation of the squares movement in that moment, right? They Nobody mm-hmm. imagines that that type of kind of unrest and that this would be a front page phenomenon for all of its faults, you know, as long as it was. We're in this moment now where we have no idea. It's all very smoky and opaque mm-hmm. in terms of, of what kind of political reaction will emerge in the, in the wake of this. But give us some of the fault lines that we should be looking out for like over the next couple of years while we continue to eat, eat hearty amounts of shit. I think, well, I mean, I, I think fundamentally um, when it just comes to sh- sheer size and, and, you know, economic power, you know, Brazil is going to be the most important fault line um, just because what happened there was so illegal uh, with the jailing and, and the, um, 
uh, of Lula, you know, the, one of the most popular politicians in the world and somebody who was clearly going to win the election right before the you know, election happened. Um, so, you know, the popular forces there are mobilizing. The question is if they're going to be able to unify against Bolsonaro. I don't, find, I don't think it's likely uh, that Bolsonaro would be able to win. Bolsonaro and his his uh, coalition would be able to win an election today in Brazil. Um, but if you look at and listen to what's been coming out of the country, um, it's becoming very clear that they might they're willing to play around uh, with democracy. I mean, you had the uh, education minister praising uh, early uh, post World War One Germany the other day um, for their <laughs> for their policies. I mean, there's there's a very frightening fascist turn in there. So that's not necessarily uh, something that is uh, you know we should <laughs> you know count it as a positive. But there is a lot of uh, you know, social um, movements that are happening there. I'd also say Bolivia right now is a massive um, fight. When we're talking about this same kind of like right-wing fascist movement that took over using the courts, right? And this seems to be the new weapon in South America is using the courts to over overrule um, the democratically elected government. Uh, they just, uh, and as the president there, she just canceled elections after saying she wasn't going to run um, in the elections in the first place. Um, she then said she was going to run. And then as they were supposed to happen, she canceled them, you know, because of coronavirus. So, you know, give them the benefit of the doubt there, but refuses to set a date. And now uh, their legislature has passed, um, you know, a demand basically, that, you know, we have to have an election in the next uh, three months. And she has overruled that. Um, so the, the union workers there and the indigenous organizations there have come out very strongly against it. So there's another big fight between the people and the government. And I think Argentina is another great example of a, of a counter shift. You know, uh, this win, this victory for Fernandez happened, you know, right as, you know, um, this coup in Bolivia is going on in the background and, uh, you know, Bolsonaro's rising in Brazil. You've seen a very mobilized population, a potential, for example, of, uh, of moving forward with abortion rights in the country. And those have come out of very strong social movements um, that are pushing back against this kind of ascendant right wing. So I think there's a lot of positivity and things to look, um, you know, to, to look forward with hope there. But it's becoming clearer and clearer that, you know, we need to start building that general international solidarity uh, across the board because we're all facing this resurgent right wing that, you know, never plays by the rules, plays by their own logic. And they're, they're accountable. They're, they're really not accountable to any specific social group except for the super rich um, and the powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Spot on. So, you know, it's, it's hard. I'm, look, I'm not, I'm not going to play the Pollyanna here and, and, you know, a lot of, there's a lot to be uh, a little gloomy about, but, yeah. but, you know, I think you're right. Like this is going to give us a picture of the fault lines that are going to continue cracking, uh, which will provide the terrain of the next upsurge, whatever that looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, it's, it's here, there's a lot to fight against and people are, are going to be upset. It, it just remains to be seen what form that's going to take. I like your metaphor before, uh, you know, I'm a former trot. So I like the, 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 the piston and the steam box uh, metaphor. <laughs> right. But you said something similar, right. Where like steam in order for it to move, something has to be confined. It has to be contained. Um, mm-hmm. And we need that kind of collectivity to emerge in order to capture the sentiment, and become a successful agent in this, uh, what will soon be, and it's hard enough to imagine the post COVID, uh, you know, world. So, yeah, David Griscom, uh, contributor and producer over there at the Michael Brooks Show, once and future king of the uh, economics uh, media circuit. Once you take down Richard Wolf for once and, and for all, 
Uh, thanks, man. Thanks so much for coming on DPS. Let's do this again soon. Yeah, thank you so much, man.